good morning, Resurrection OC family. Good morning. Uh, so this is uh, my fourth time being able to worship with everyone. Uh, my wife and I have just been so incredibly blessed by uh, the hospitality and the care and the love that we've received from so many people. So uh, thank you guys. And before you, uh, you know, start tapping the person next to you and whispering like, who, who is this guy that's speaking right now? Uh, here's a little introduction. My name is Trevor Allen. Uh, my wife, my best friend in the world, Noelle, uh, we uh, just relocated here to uh, Rancho Santa Margarita with our two kids. Uh, basically, the reason we're here is uh, we're doing a church planting apprenticeship uh, with Resurrection OC. So basically what that means is uh, all of our friends and elders and pastors and teachers and you know, family from, from you know, over the past two years have been saying, hey, we think that you guys should explore church planting. We think that you should check that out. So uh, as we went through the process, the, our denomination, the PCA, said, yeah, you know, we think you guys are church planters. We think that you would have the capacity to do that. But we also think that a, two, a one to two year apprenticeship would do you well. So we're like, OK, yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and do that. That sounds like a good time. And, you know, being born and raised in Southern California, we were super excited to be here. We wanted to you know, see this Christ-honoring, Bible-believing, gospel-obsessed congregation. We wanted to see more of them planted all over Southern California. So, you know, after agreeing to this, uh, the, the honeymoon stage kind of started to, you know, drift away. It was, um, you know, everything they show you in the brochure, they, they tell you after, like, you know, you've signed, like, you know, you get your blood and then you sign a piece of paper. And um, it's not that intense, but pretty close. Um, so, you know, we start hearing, oh, hey, you have to raise a million dollars. Oh, hey, this is going to be this is going to be really difficult. Oh, uh, hey, if you go plant a church in Southern you know, California, it's going to take you two, three times as long as other church plants uh, throughout the United States. So, you know, and, and during this time, I'm finishing up seminary. We went to uh, we were in South Carolina for three years. We moved back. I you know, got a shiny new Master of Divinity degree. It's the you know, most expensive piece of paper I own. But, you know, like everyone in this room, we had all of these questions that we had to answer. You know, these, these logistical questions of, okay, we need to uproot our family. We need to leave this church that loves us dearly and that we love dearly. We need to sell a house. We need to find out where we're going to live. Um, you know, there were, there were so many of these circumstances that that we're bringing about these questions. These questions kept coming up as, as each new circumstance and situation arose, we'd have these questions begin to arise in our own hearts. And, you know, there were questions, they were heavy and good questions that we needed to answer for sure. But then, you know, the harder questions start to arise. Not just this, you know, logistical, logical uh, things like to take care of us externally, but, you know, the questions like, is this actually the way that the Lord wants to move us? Is, is this what he wants to do with our lives? Are we being truthful with ourselves? That, that is this just a marriage of ego and ambition coming together? Or is this us actually wanting to be motivated to see gospel churches planted all over Southern Orange County? Is this a way of safety and security for our family? You know, and, and I think 
if I can, I'm just going to be fully honest with you guys. Like I, I have the, the brain to mouth filter sometimes doesn't work so well. You'll get to know that. Um, you know, is I had to ask the question, is Jesus worth following? Um, is Jesus trustworthy? Can, can I put my life and my family and my finances and everything into his hands? And, you know, it, let's say I answer all these questions perfectly, right? Like everything, just textbook Christian, like, oh, yes. You know, I could write a book with each one of my answers. The question that, that was so deep with me that resonated, that kept bouncing around in my heart was this. How is it even possible for me to trust Jesus? And I know that's it's kind of a weird way to phrase it, but how is it possible for me to trust Jesus? Yes, I can affirm these things are true, but if I affirm it today, will I be able to affirm this tomorrow? Will Jesus be trustworthy for me tomorrow? How will I be sustained in this adventure, in this in this new mission? And you know, I, I'm I'm sure that all of us have had these questions, and and these questions don't just start from you know moving or job a lot of times you know these circumstances happen to us but you know what kind of questions arise when we are taking care of a sick family member or spouse you know what kind of questions come into our heart when we are considering a job loss or you know what what questions are spurned on if you have a broken or an apathetic marriage you know, what kind of questions come to the surface in your heart when you're faced with all these circumstances? It's, it's the questions themselves. And, you know, questions of personal health, not just physical, but spiritual as well. There are so many things as human beings. We're faced with so many circumstances and so many questions arise. And, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't fill up, like, we don't have enough time in the world to go through every individual's circumstance and questions that have arisen out of this very room. But what I can do is I can point us to the ultimate answer to these questions. And in, in our text this morning, uh, in, we're going to start in uh, John 13 and roll into 14. But before we do that, though, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word that we would not be merely informed by what Scripture says, but transformed by the power of the Spirit, that we would be able to have this answer deep in our hearts and then minister it to each other. Let's pray. Oh God, even in our circumstances throughout this, this life, You are the faithful one. Lord, when we try to run away from You, when we try to take the bull by the horns ourselves, when we when we think that we have the wisdom and the knowledge and, and we just get ourselves deeper and deeper. Lord Jesus, you are the one that sees us and you know us. You've called us to yourself. Lord, we are good with you. We are so satisfied that you are the way and the truth and the life that you have called us to be your children, that we would be able to live in community together, that we would be able to live with you forever in communion before the face of the Father. Lord, I ask now that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would bless your church, that the Holy Spirit would give eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, understanding that we would be able to take these truths of your word and carry them with us throughout the week that we would be able to remind ourselves and each other of these wonderful nuggets that you've given to us here in John. Lord, we pray all these things that your name would be glorified, and that we would find our true joy in you.
Amen. So if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. Uh, verse 36, I forgot to check the uh, Pew Bible, but you know, as you're scrolling there, flipping there, uh, wh- whatever verb you want to use to get to John 13, 36, would you stand with me uh, when you find John 13, 36? And we will read through uh, John 13, 36 through 14, 7. So, you know, don't be worried. We're not going to read 50 verses. It's, I think it's only about 10 or so. But as we stand, we are going to be able to hear and listen to the very word of God that is going to shape us and teach us what this answer to all of our circumstantial questions will be. John 13, starting in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you that the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Friends, this is the very word of God that points us to the way of the father and the truth of the spirit that we can engage with the life of the son. This is God's good word for us. Please have a seat. You know, in, in this section of uh, verses 36 and 38 right here, through 38 in, the, in chapter 13, Peter starts asking questions because of these circumstances, right? And the questions he asks are very telling of where his heart is. He says, Lord, where are you going? Lord, why can I not follow you now? And if you look in verse 5 of chapter 14, Thomas says, how can we know the way? In fact, if we had time to read this whole section, we would see that it's not only these two, it's, it's Peter, it's Thomas, it's Philip, and, and Judas, not Iscariot, all start asking Jesus all of these questions. They're all sitting down at this table and they start asking all of these questions. They just begin to pepper Jesus with, what about this? What about that? Why can I not go? And then they're just asking so many questions. As we read this section, this actually, you know, is we get context to the question when we understand what's happening, what's taking place here. As they're sitting down, they're actually eating a final Passover meal with Jesus. Before Jesus is going to be crucified on the eve of his crucifixion, they sit down and they enjoy a Passover meal together. But the crazy thing is, if you notice, these questions are questions of trouble and turmoil. And the, the Passover meal is supposed to be a celebratory meal. The only questions that should be asked at the, cel- or the uh, Passover meal are questions like, Lord, you know, we're out of dip. Where can I go get some more? Or, hey, the kids drank all the soda. Are they in the back refrigerator? These are the questions that should be asked at a Passover meal. 
not questions of abandonment and fear. So the reason for the, the Passover meal to be celebratory was this was a commemoration, a remembrance of one of the greatest rescue missions that God ever accomplished back in Exodus. Back in the Old Testament, in the second book of the Bible, it is God has called his people and they're called the Israelites and they're named the Israelites after their father, Israel. So, you know, it kind of makes sense. He has 12 sons and then they start to reproduce. And then ultimately this nation, Israel, is is brought into uh, slavery for over 400 years. They are they are slaves to the Egyptian uh, and to the king Pharaoh. Right. And so in this, the people cry out to God and say, Lord, deliver us. We cannot do this anymore. And then God sends them a rescuer. He sends them a redeemer, Moses. And then God shows the Egyptians that he is God over all the world with these 10 plagues. And these 10 plagues are actually meant to mock the Egyptian gods. So just as an example, there's there's one plague of darkness this darkness that comes over the land and it's not just oh i can't see this darkness hurts your soul and your body they they feel this darkness and what yahweh what god is showing them in this moment is that i am god even over ra the sun god i am the creator and sustainer of all of the universe nobody will stand up to me and so in this the lord ultimately saves them and uh before the this, this meal, this Passover meal is instituted right before the 10th plague, though, where God says, while they are still in slavery, they, God institutes a, a salvific meal. He says, sit down and eat and remember that I am God and I cover you, that I am your sustainer. And they eat and they celebrate this meal of salvation while they're still in slavery. So, you know, spoiler alert. God saves his people. And then each year after this, they remember, they remember the salvation. They celebrate the salvation of God himself. And so as these apostles are in this, you know, celebratory meal, they're extremely sad because of what's happening. Jesus says earlier in chapter 13, that I'm going to my father, that I'm going back to my father from whom I came. And so they're thinking, you know, they're having this freak out mode of this Jesus that has been leading us, this Jesus that we declare as Lord, this good shepherd that has been feeding us and leading us and teaching us and showing us what true life looks like. He is going away. This celebratory meal, you know, quickly, the celebratory meal of salvation quickly becomes a meal of despair for the disciples. And is it not kind of, you know, ironic and troubling to some degree that as they celebrate salvation, they actually feel as though they're losing their salvation because Jesus is leaving. If you look at verses 13, uh, 36 and 37, or chapter 13, verses 36 and 37, it says this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter, in this moment, he's asking these questions, but he doesn't take time to wait for Jesus' answer. If you notice, he asks question, question, and then says, I will lay down my life for you. In he is not patient in his predicament. What he does actually is he, he full on says, Lord, I am going to show you what salvation looks like. And he's, he's well-intentioned, right? 
He's well-intentioned in this. But what Peter does is, he says, I will lay down my life for you. But little does Peter know that Jesus is going to lay down his life for Peter. You know, and I think Peter's train of thought in this moment of, of, I love you so much, Jesus, I need to be where you are. Peter thinks that his, just, his mere desire for Jesus is enough to save him. You know, this is how I think Peter's train of thought goes. Well, if Jesus is going to be the Father, going to the Father, I'll, I'll just go with him. I mean, I know the way to get to the Father. I'm a good Jewish boy. I've read the scriptures. You know, uh, I, I know the truth of the Father. I know that I have lived a life that the Father will accept. So therefore, I will die with Jesus and we will be, we will be co-pilgrims together. Whereas Peter thinks that he's on the same track with Christ, but Jesus is the one that is the way to God. When Peter says, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus says, no, I will lay down my life for you, Peter. You know, if, if we were to sum up this entire section, I think that John has, has a big idea for us in this section of Scripture. And I think this big idea that John wants us to get, the, the writer of the Gospel of John, what I think he wants us to see, what he wants us to rehearse and remember is that through the troubles and strife, Jesus is our life. I mean, you know, you may think that's so stupid and simple and elementary. Okay, it, I hope it gets stuck in your brain. That through troubles and strife, Jesus is our life. Can we not rehearse that all the time? And, and Jesus knows his sheep. He knows his apostles. He knows these disciples so well. Because he's anticipating for them. He's seeing, okay, they're extremely troubled. And so how does he start verse in, in chapter 14, verse 1? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And in verse 2 he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I am going but Thomas said to him Lord we do not know where you are going how can we know the way Jesus said to him I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me if you had known me you would have known my father also from now on you do know him and have seen him now if you were a Christian here today, if you were not a Christian, if, if you're in this place where you don't know what you are, most people in the Western world know this truth claim about Christianity. They, they know this truth claim of Jesus that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. This is an absolutely outrageous and absolute truth claim that Jesus makes. To say that he is the only way to God. What a thing to say. Now, if you stop and think for a moment, though, have you ever actually pondered that? Have you ever taken a minute to digest what it means to be the way, the truth, and the life? And that with Jesus claiming this, what that's such a heavy truth claim. Um, this Scottish pastor, his name is John Duncan, Rabbi John Duncan. He's a, a Scottish Protestant pastor. Uh, he says this about Jesus, that Christ is either deceived, that, oh, I'm sorry, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and he was self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. 
So this guy is saying that Jesus is crazy, he's a liar, or he truly is divine. He is the Son of God. He is who he claims to be. And with Jesus claiming this, this means that there is no other way. He says in verse 2, look back at verse 2 with me in uh, chapter 14. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Now, we, we kind of see that, that Peter said in the beginning in, in chapter 13 there, like, yeah, I know how to get there. I know exactly how to get there. I've, I've got this. But what Jesus is saying, I'm going before you. Let me ask you guys a question. Have, have you felt that way? Do you feel like you have the capacity? Do you have the ability? Do you have the, the moral uprightness? Do you have the looks and the athletics to go to where the Father is and then to prepare a place for yourself in the Father's house? Of course you don't. There's no possible way. And then not only that, let's say, let's say that you answered yes and you were delusional and you said, yes, I totally know how to get there. I know the way. How do you get other people there? Then you have this other problem of bringing other people on. How do you get others to God and not just yourself? In chapter 16, and you don't have to turn it, you can if you want to. Uh, chapter 16, verse 28 of John, Jesus claims this. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. Jesus is either a madman he is self-deluded and a liar, or he is divine. Now, if either, if any of us in this room made the truth claims of Jesus that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that I'm going to prepare a place for not just me, but for all of you in the kingdom of God, you would be, you would hit probably both. You would hit, you know, self-deluded, maniac, liar, right? Like that's where we would fall into the category. That is why Jesus is the way and the truth and the life for us. We need Jesus as our bridge. We need Jesus as our mediator. We need Jesus as the very way to the kingdom of God because we do not have the capacity to get there on our own. We cannot do it. Paul the Apostle writes to a young pastor in the book of 1 Timothy. He says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle affirms this, and Jesus the Christ claims this for himself. So when these troublesome times erupt in our lives, when these circumstances arise, when the questions start to come, will I have a job? Will I be able to get here? Will I be able to do this or that? Or if this one thing would just happen, when these circumstances arise, and the questions start flooding our minds, we can affirm that Jesus is the very way to God himself. That when these troublesome times come, that Jesus has made himself known to us as the way. There's not this secret test that we have to fill out. And it's like, okay, cool, you, pat, you know the secret handshake to get in. Jesus has made himself accessible to all of us. And so, you know, if you think of, okay, Jesus is the way, Amen. Praise God. He's the way to God. But then what about this, this claim of that he is the truth? What does it mean for Jesus to be the truth, right? This I am the way, the truth, and the life is the answer to all of these you know, troublesome inquiries based on these terrible circumstances, seemingly terrible circumstances. What does it mean for Jesus to actually be the truth? Now, 
one thing I've learned over the years is that, that studying the Bible and teaching the Bible and being trained to do all these things, that, that context is absolutely king. So in this, we look at the context of Jesus saying, what does it mean for him to be the truth? The truth is that Jesus is claiming that he knows the way to the Father, that he knows the Father. He intimately can discern and tell us what the Father is like and who the Father is. This is an intense truth claim. But imagine this. So imagine one day, you know, you come home from work, you've had a busy, crazy day at work, and uh, you come home and you, you hear this, this banging and this painting and this, you know, music going on in one of your back rooms and like, what in the world is happening? You, you know, you, you walk back there and these kids broke into your house and they're in your guest bedroom and they're, they're preparing a place, right? Like they're preparing a place for themselves and for all of their friends to come into your house. Uh, after you're done calling the cops and maybe laughing, you, that would be weird because they don't have the authority to do that. They don't know you intimately enough to come into your house. You are not in communion with them as a family member. Jesus himself is in communion with God enough to invite us into his house. Jesus is preparing a place for us in the Father's kingdom, and he brings us because he has the authority and the intimacy with the Father to do this. In, in John chapter 1, verse 18, uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says, John says this about Jesus, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. What John is saying there is that the Father and the Son are equal in substance, and they're, they're the same in substance, and they are equal in power and authority with one another. Jesus has the right to prepare a room. And in this section, if, if you flip there, you don't have to, but uh, at the end of John 18, or John chapter 1, verse 18, these words it says, He has made him known, that Jesus has made the Father known. He has made him known. These five words in English are actually two words in Greek, the original language that the New Testament was written in. And, and the, it carries this, this weighty sense. It's not just a matter of knowing him and making him known, but it's, it's more along the lines of uh, Jesus who intimately explains the Father. He is doing that out of personal experience. That from Jesus didn't read all the theology books. Jesus didn't read the Bible. He wasn't, he, he wasn't all of these things. Jesus knows the Father from eternity past intimately in a personal, triune relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This truth and intimacy that Jesus has of the Father, He makes known to us. He makes the Father, the truth of who God is, accessible to us as human beings. So in these times of trouble, when, when the questions arise, when the, when the weary circumstances are ever before us, and, and the questions are floating around our brains like a ghost that, that keeps haunting us, we can say and we can remember John's big idea, right? That... Through troubles and strife, Jesus is our life. So Jesus is the way, and He is the truth, and He makes it known who God is. And He shows us how to be and to get to God Himself. Lastly, I, I, I want to explore this concept of Jesus as life. Now, this 
this story doesn't just start, we, we've stuck primarily to the Gospel of John since we're, we've been exploring the Jesus statements of the I am statements of Christ. That all of these I am statements are actually founded deeply in the Old Testament scriptures when the prophets speak about this God that is going to come and reconcile the world of this, this king, this anointed king that is going to destroy sin and death. Of this, of this priest that is going to be the mediator in the way of sinful man back to holy God. The, the Old Testament speaks of these I am statements of Jesus so much. And this story of Jesus is the life doesn't begin in the Gospel of John. It starts all the way back in the garden, back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is where, where life begins. When God the Creator, He makes all things from nothing by the word of His power. He does these things in an intimate way to say, this is going to reflect my very nature. And then the pinnacle of all of creation is humanity. Because while the goodness and the, and the rhythm and the logic of nature reflects the goodness and the order of God, man is created in his image. Man is created to commune with each other and to commune with God in the way that God communes with the Father and the Son. It's this creator-creature distinction. If you want to get weird about that later, call me, we'll get coffee. But um, there definitely is this weird, the pinnacle of creation. Humanity is. And in that, God made us very good to dwell with Him forever and to live in the way that He's called us to. He says, Go forth and multiply. Subdue the land. Be protectors. Be culture makers. Be cultivators. Go out and, and share my fame. Spread my glory throughout the land. So as you do this, you live in the way that you've been made. You are flourishing in your design. But in that, we that was not good enough for us as human beings. What we wanted was... It wasn't good enough just to have God as our joy. What we wanted, we wanted the throne of God. We wanted to take His crown. We wanted to say, I want what God has. I want to be like God. So what we try to do is we try to take God's crown and put it on our heads. And when we did that, it broke our backs. Because what we did, we cannot carry the crown of the king of the universe. Our, our spines and our muscles cannot support it. What we did was we rebelled against God. We declared war on God and said, I want what you have. And so we became enemies of God in that moment. We became the very thing that God loves so deeply that we are now the ones that say, I want what you have. We want to come into your kingdom. We want all the rooms. We don't want to make room for you. We want to be the one in charge. But in God's mercy and his love for us and in his compassion, in His righteousness and His holiness, He made a way for us to come back to Him. He says, I'm going to send you My Son. Jesus the Christ came from His eternal communion with the Father and the Spirit, and He came and He took on flesh. Now, God Himself taking on flesh. God takes on smelly armpits. God takes on ingrown toenails. Jesus got the flu. Jesus was a true man and true God as our mediator between God and man to make a way back to God. And so in this, as, as Jesus takes on our sinfulness, He does it perfectly. 
We rebel against God when we are made very good. We have the, the option to sin or to not sin. But Jesus says, I'm going to do what you guys couldn't do. I'm going to live the life that you should have lived. And, and not as a should have lived, as in God is this angry old man with the clipboard in heaven, being like, oh, Trevor, do that again. Whoop, oh, here you go. Like, too much coffee. Uh, you know, bad steward of his body, all these things. What he's saying is, I want you to flourish. I want you to live in the design that I've called you to. So Jesus does what we couldn't do. And then he dies the criminal's death that we each deserve to die. That this, this going to the cross, and yes, the cross is a brutal way to die. It's terrible. I wouldn't want that for anybody. But there have been people that have endured more physical pain than that. There have been people that have died more gruesome deaths than just dying on the cross. And that's not to discount the pain of the cross. But the, the pain that Jesus took on for us was the wrath of God being poured out on him. As a rebel, as my rebellious heart says, no God, I can do this myself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. My rebellion against God, he says, I'm going to pour my wrath out on you, you sinful, unrighteous, rebellious creature. But what Jesus does is he says, I'm going to take that for you. I'm going to die this gruesome, bloody death, yes, but I'm going to have the wrath of God poured out on me for the sake of my people. And so in that, Jesus lives his perfect life, and he dies this sacrificial, atoning death. But then the beautiful thing is, the name of this church, this is one of the things that drew us to this church. If, if a group of people would claim resurrection Orange County, the mission is in the name. The resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. He defeats sin. He defeats death. Think about that. Think about that. The, the death that plagues all of us, that we will all unless the Lord returns, we will all experience this. Jesus defeats that. He says, no death, you have no claim on my people. And so in his resurrection, he defeats sin and he defeats death. And as he's resurrected into resurrection life, we now have resurrection life with Jesus himself. And even more so as he's resurrected, he then ascends, he goes up to be with the Father again. And as he ascends to be with the Father, where Jesus is, there his people are also. So our room is prepared and we are being prepared. Our room is being prepared, but my name's already on the door. Your name is already on the door. If you trust in these things that Jesus Christ died the death that you should have died and he lived the life that you couldn't live and that he in his resurrection life you now have resurrection life and in his ascension you now have this communion with god and you are now a a co-heir and a co-reigner with jesus christ so we're not made to be, you know, these, we're not made to die and become these little naked angel babies that float around with harps or whatever. We are created for a purpose. We are now in Christ. We are co-laborers with Jesus. We have part in advancing the kingdom of God today, right now. From, from the time we get up here to when you walk to the parking lot, we are kingdom advancers. We are ambassadors. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And we can trust that Jesus is this life, that he is this way and this truth and this life. Because is, remember John's big idea that through troubles and strife, Jesus is our life. 
So when these troubles and these strife and these, these inquiries and these questions arise, we can, our identity is wrapped up in this way, in this truth, in this life. And if my identity is in Christ and with Christ and my life is Christ, this will influence my decisions. This will influence how I respond to these questions when they come up. This will be the very thing that I think about. I am a son of the living God. How am I going to respond to this person who has torn my heart out and put it into a blender? How am I going to respond to the fact that my bank account is dwindling? How am I going to respond to the fact that I have a wayward child and I cannot bring them to Jesus? Only he can do that himself. It is our identity that is wrapped up in Christ where we can answer all these questions. Now, remember my, my big question at the very beginning? We're, we're getting close to finishing up here. Um, remember my big question in the beginning? How is it possible? How is it possible to have the ability to trust Jesus right now and in five minutes and in five hours and in five weeks? How is that possible? How can I keep running back to this fact that, that it is through trial or through troubles and strife that Jesus is my life? How do we do that as a church? How do we do that as individuals? It is the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the Father's plan to send the Son to accomplish redemption. And now the very Spirit of God ministers the life, death, resurrection, ascension, rule, and the hope of His eternal return to our hearts, this hope of who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit ministers this to us. Because remember I said that Jesus makes this outrageous truth claim. It is offensive to people that don't know the gospel. It would be offensive to me had the Holy Spirit not converted my heart. I could not believe these things on my own. I could not do what Peter did and say, I'll just die for myself. I'm good enough for that. It is the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper, that ministers the truth of this resurrected Christ to my heart. And not only that, when we struggle, we need to be honest and quick to repent in our struggle. Like the man in Mark chapter 9 that says, Lord, I believe. Will you help my unbelief? We can simultaneously doubt and affirm Christ in the same moment because it is Jesus that ministers by the power of His Spirit, His way, His truth, and His life to us. So it's the Spirit working us individually. But then, as the church, as the church, we come alongside of each other. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. That the body of Christ, that Jesus has loved, that He has purchased, that He has called, we are called to strengthen each other. We are called to remind each other of the goodness and the faithfulness. We are, we are encouraged to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other in the, in, and sing the grace and the glory and the goodness of who Jesus is and who the Father is. But on the flip side, there are times when we have a duty to help each other and nurture each other into holiness. When, yes, there are the positives that we sing toward each other, but what happens when I try to take the bull by the horns myself and I say that I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life? If you guys sit back and say, you know, Trevor's a good guy, he'll come back around sooner or later. That's not what you're called to be as the church. If my foot were turning green, would my hand say, oh, that's probably not good. The foot will take care of itself. No, my other foot would walk my body to the doctor. I would call out and say, that is wrong. 
That is not what you're designed to do. That is not what human flourishing looks like. So as the church, we can call each other out in kindness. We speak the truth in love. You don't go to somebody with a personal agenda and say, you're doing this wrong. You would satisfy me better if you did it this way. But we have the heart of what Jesus or what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2. To consider other better, to consider others better than ourselves. And that's not to say that we, you know, beat ourselves up, but that's to say that we love what Jesus loves. So as the church, I beg you, church, if you see me falling, I don't care if you don't like if we haven't like been formally introduced as the body of Christ, I would beg you to call me back to Jesus. And I would encourage you all to call each other back to Jesus. To, to build each other up in goodness and truth, but then to help walk each other through this soul care, this repentance, and this, this joy of being made right with Jesus again. We should do this for each other and with each other. And so church, when the heavy questions arise, I want us to rehearse these answers. I want us to rehearse this week that through troubles and strife that Jesus is our life, when, when the heavy questions arise, how do I know what the heavy questions are in your life unless we are communing with each other, unless we're breaking bread together and eating and drinking coffee together and opening up with each other? Hospitality is not just something to do. It's for the sake and the purity and the peace of the church that I say, here is, this is who I am. I expose myself so that the goodness and the glory of the gospel can fill in the cracks of my life. When these heavy questions come, church, let's feast on this big idea that points us to the risen Jesus, that through troubles and strife, Jesus is our life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there is so much goodness that you've given to us. There is so much grace that you've shown us in your Son. That, Lord, you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life that we have forever. Lord, as we forget these things, let us be quick to repent. Let us be so fast to run to you. Lord, when we repent, let us say, thank you, Jesus. Lord, will you forgive me? Thank you. We don't even need to put in the comma. Just, Lord, forgive me. Thank you. Lord, we thank you for the goodness that you've shown us in Jesus. And I ask that you would give us a burden for each other in this room. That we would not only see ourselves as we want to grow in you, but that we would love to see our church flourish. And Lord, let us remind ourselves that there are people that do not know the way, the truth, and the life. So let us be bold in exclaiming the truth. Let us make friends with people. Let us share in life with people that don't believe these things so that we can minister the truth to them. Lord, without you, we would be nothing. And so I ask that your spirit would sustain us and remind us of these truths throughout the week. Pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.